Welcome to the Westside Investors Network. Win your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. Just a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for educational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any shares or securities, make or consider any investments or take any other action. Welcome back to another episode of the Deal Deep Dive segment on the Westside Investors Network podcast. I'm your host, Trent Werner. In this segment, our featured guests will share their unique stories on a specific deal they've invested in. We will dive deep into finding the deal, financing the deal, writing an offer, and the due diligence. Do us a solid and smash that subscribe button, leave us a rating, and share this episode. And now, let's dive deep. On today's Deal Deep Dive episode, we are joined by Randy Langenderfer of Invest Arc Properties. Randy's a general partner in over 1,100 doors and $110 million in assets under management. Randy has years of experience from investing as a limited partner when he first got started to now being a lead sponsor, co-GP, as well as key partner on multiple multifamily deals in the Sunbelt region of the United States. Now let's welcome Randy Langenderfer. Welcome back to the Westside Investors Network podcast. I am Trent Warner, and I'm joined by, and I'm going to take a stab at it because I want to, Randy Langenderfer, who has plenty of experience in the multifamily real estate facet. He's done everything from co-sponsors to LP investments to key sponsors. We'll hear about it all today. Randy, thank you so much for joining us. I'm excited to talk today. Well, Trent, thanks so much. And you nailed it. Langendurfer, just like it's spelled. So a pleasure to be here today. And in spite of the fact you're going to be rooting for the Huskies and I'm going to be rooting for the Wolverines. So we'll keep that between us. For anyone listening or watching this episode in the future, the national championship for college football is four days away. So we were talking about that beforehand. But today, Randy, we are going to chat about, one, your experience in your career thus far, and two, a deal that you acquired two years ago now. And we'll dive into that in a little bit. Randy, what has your career looked like so far to lead you to doing all these different facets and roles and wearing all these different hats? Well, thanks again, Trent. And I would say that I've been doing this for 10 years now, and my journey started, I currently reside in Houston, Texas, and I... uh, decided that I was working for a private equity company and I really needed to find another job, another income stream, I should say another income stream. I really set about a very deliberate course over the last nine plus years to exit the corporate world and focus full-time on real estate. I fell in love with commercial real estate, more specifically multifamily in 2014. When I moved to Houston, I had been a single family hard money lender and found one of the big national educational groups here. And I learned about multifamily and non-recourse debt and the ability to syndicate using other people's money. Fell in love with the space. I left the corporate world in last year, April of 23, and have been focusing full-time on multifamily since then and truly enjoying it. I hear this kind of progression a lot where you start in the single family, you know, doing the deal or hard money lending, all that stuff. And then A lot of people tend to gravitate and progress to the syndication or just maybe a partnership type of investment when it gets to the multifamily units. What drew you to, other than the non-recourse debt, was there anything that drew you to this 
switch from the smaller deals to syndicating apartments? I'm that classic guy, very risk adverse finance, MBA, CPA by education. So I'm finance, I'm risk adverse by my nature. I got into it because I'd had one deal go south in the single family flipping. And truly, once you understand the mathematics behind it and the returns, it was just better than anything I had seen before. I'd looked at trying to buy small businesses, franchises, other means to get out of the corporate world. And I just realized it's something that I can grow into. So I started out small, like most would do. I did single family, did a couple ones. I learned multifamily and I didn't start out being a general partner. I started being a limited partner. I found people and I educated myself by joining large mentor groups and then working with sponsors. How can I help you? Volunteering time and volunteering effort, doing due diligence, doing other things. It was really a very conscious effort to educate myself. And trying to think today, there's so many people that have the Facebook mentality and compare themselves to this guy's out there doing, he's doing five deals or two deals or 50 deals and go at your own pace. I always say, it's like the hare and the tortoise. Slow and steady wins the race, not the quick burnout side. So be diligent and over the long haul, you'll be successful. I really like what you said about the education time and the time that you spent educating yourself and investing as a limited partner. I think not many people that get into this space either have the capital or maybe just figure they can do it on their own to start off with, or maybe partner on the GP side. But one thing that I've done as well is invest as a limited partner. And it really allows you to kind of see the customer, the consumer side of things. And so when you do graduate and go into the GP or the sponsor side, you're able to understand what your investors expect and how to be better than the other GPs that may be out there or that you're competing with, right? Yeah. And so I'm a coach today as well. And so, I mean, I asked people that I helped start out, I said, you know, you got to find a deal that you like, you got to develop your own strategy. I said, what's a bad deal? What's a good deal? But when you're starting, you don't know the difference. You can ask perhaps some intelligent questions and because after you've done it for a while, you've seen bad deals and then you can really talk about what's a bad deal and how it went bad or why it went bad. That was part of my educational process. And, you know, I was so risk adverse starting out, I could probably have put down 50K, but I chose to joint venture with a friend or a brother-in-law and go 50-50 on a deal. So we each put 25 in a trust and invested because I wasn't going to put all my money and all my eggs in one basket to start with. Yeah. So fast forward today, I'm probably in 15 or 20 of these different limited partner or general partner deals. And you gain comfort with it as you grow. And I think, again, going back to encourage your audience, people start out with wanting to be that person out there on Facebook or LinkedIn talking about all the deals they did. I would rather get singles and doubles and an occasional triple than strikeouts using a baseball illustration, right? Absolutely. Uh, the person with a singles and doubles and periodic triple is going to have a much higher batting average. And so it is with investing. You really want to understand the risk that you're getting into and attempt to mitigate them. Right. So when it comes to understanding and mitigating risk for you as a sponsor or on the GP side, what kind of deals are you looking for? Do you have certain markets that you look in? Do you have certain styles of apartment complexes or properties that you look in? What are you looking for when it comes to investments or being a sponsor? Yeah, that varies too. I think as you grow and educate yourself, I think that changes as well. So I started out in the class C space, looking for class C's. The first one I did on my own as a sponsor was a 
I had a good, very dear friend that was a mentor advised me, Randy, don't do this deal. It was a 1965 build with flat roofs and a chiller boiler in Beaumont, Texas. And I really gained my honorary PhD in property management of that asset, but it worked out well. But today we're looking more for the newer products, like a lot of people, class A, B plus, a focus in the Sunbelt region. So today I own part of deals in Greenville, South Carolina, Tucson, Arizona, Houston, and Dallas, that Sunbelt area where, again, from a risk mitigation perspective, it's growing populations, growing incomes in the Sunbelt, those regions of the U.S., and that's a wide area. So there's a lot of opportunity there and building relationships there across different markets, people. So when you buy a deal in your, obviously in your markets, what you're looking for, what's a typical value add plan or asset management plan that you're seeing as a sponsor? I think it's funny. I don't think anybody really advertises anything as a yield play. I don't think I've ever seen a sponsor say, this is the yield play. Not in multifamily, anyhow. So they all start out with a value add of some type. And it's up to the investor to determine the merit of that. The one deal we can talk a little bit about is the asset I purchased and was a lead sponsor on with another colleague here in Houston. We closed in February of 2022, and it was a five-year-old property. So it was truly a class A. It was a small property. It was 60 units. But that was intriguing to us. And what took us after that deal was because it was new. It had very low deferred maintenance. We knew we were going to be accepting more risk with a bridge loan than a traditional fixed rate loan. And so we wanted to mitigate one variable, which was deferred maintenance. And we did. What I'm looking for today is that class A, B, maybe B plus in the Sunbelt, 100 units or more. Sweet spot probably would be in the 15 to $20 million range, but I've been part of much bigger deals as well as a capital raiser. I always say, when people ask what you're looking for, I'm just looking for a story, an investment story that I can sell to my investment community, have one, have confidence in myself that I can put my name behind it and be a part of it. I mentioned that is the strategy, but in 22, late 22, I closed with a partner on a 1970 build in Tucson. And it's just a tremendous story, though. That's the best performing asset in my portfolio today because it was just run by a property owner who was fat, dumb, and happy and was worried about having 100% occupancy versus maximizing rental income. And we took it over. We're getting, in some cases, three $350 rent bumps on units with making modest improvements, but it was just so far behind market. That's what I mean, an example of a story. The story for the Houston 60 unit was value add, light work, raise rents, put in some improvements, parking, covered parking, tech package. That's the value add in that one. And the one in Tucson was just make room improvements, granite counters and the kitchen and the bathroom, replace some covers where needed, replace fencing around the outside. So the appearance of the property looked much greater. You're always trying to increase rents up to market. So two examples with different value adds. And now, here's a word from our sponsor. Get things done while you're on the move. Learn more about working with a virtual assistant through off-site professionals. It's a great way to get all the things done that you need to get done. Have freedom in your time and streamline your life by automating your business. Stop spending time on the tasks that you can delegate and start spending more time on your superpower. Call us today at 503 503- 
446-3177 or visit our website at offsiteprofessionals.com. Uptown Syndication is now offering a syndication coaching program for you to take your real estate portfolio to the next level. This is your opportunity to have experienced syndicators, AJ and Chris Shepard, coach you on your way to controlling your real estate investing future. Our coaching program will provide you with the tools and framework needed to begin syndicating real estate in your target market. Go to uptownsyndication.com today to learn more. Right. And I think for the value add investor, because you have big money that's buying all the class A stuff, the big properties, but for this 60 unit property, it being only five years old, I'm assuming, like you already mentioned, you're not renovating units. You're not doing these huge facelifts like you would on a 70s or 80s property. And I think a lot of value add investors are in that 70s, 80s, 90s facelift unit right. turns, all that stuff. When you looked and analyzed this 60 unit deal from 2022, the class A one, aside from just raising rents, were there any other inefficiencies that you were able to look at and say, hey, we can improve this to make this deal operate better? Yeah, I think it was fairly well managed. They had at the time when we were buying it, 60 units. So that is right on the borderline, as you know, with full-time property management. And they had had one individual in doing both property and maintenance, which I mean, leasing and maintenance, which is very unusual. Yeah. And so we actually, our business plan was to increase one and a half. So we would have a full-time leasing and a part-time maintenance guy. So we were increasing payroll going in to the deal. But our value add was really, we were putting tech packages in each of the units. We were putting ceramic backsplashes in the kitchens and insert in the closets to make them more. That was really our value add proposition. And we did that. We ended up putting tech packages in all the units, which for those people, smart locks, smart thermostats primarily, which from an asset management perspective and a property management perspective is really great because you eliminate keys. You don't have to worry about keys and property management can get into the unit anytime, assuming it's not deadbolted from the inside. And tenants can then control their heat and air conditioning, air conditioning, big thing in Houston, from their device, from their phone in the car or at work, turn it down during the day and up at night or vice versa. Those in that submarket were seen as value and we were able to increase rents. And then sorry to say the market dropped in second half of 22 and things changed. But how do you adapt? I know, in especially these last 12 months, or I guess 18 months now, you have this plan from the get-go when you acquire a property, when you buy an asset, and then you have a market shift like we saw. How are you adapting or adjusting to the current market conditions with a newer asset in your portfolio? Yeah, and you would think that newer asset would be really easy to run. But it is as much work as a 200-unit property on just keeping it rented and stuff. So the time we took it over, I mentioned we had one individual serving as the leasing and maintenance guy, and we had decided to retain him in the transition to new ownership. And abruptly after we acquired the property within weeks, he terminated his employment, his own accord, and took a different job. So that put us in a pickle. And so for several months, we had an interim property manager there on site. So our property management company 60 units is difficult. We wanted somebody good, that range. They didn't have any on the bench. So we used a temporary agency through them. And that was okay. I mean, it kept the wheels on the bus, but we hired a new property manager then, two or four months in, and primarily because he was available. 
I mean to say that was a wrong decision because he turned out to be not what we needed. And then we hired a maintenance guy in there too. Come the fall of 22, I don't know what happened. It was a phenomenon across the country, but we started to experience a lot of delinquencies and resulting in evictions and moving people out. And for a while there, our occupancy dropped to high 70s, low 80s. And on a 60 unit, that is severe crunch on cash flow on a 60 unit. It may be different on a 300 unit or 250 unit, but 60 unit, that's down into the 40s. And so then we made the tough decision on asset managers to terminate the property manager that we had hired in the spring of 22, late in 22. And I think we got the new one in there in December of 22 or January of 23. And this is the example of not knowing a good deal from a bad deal. And you don't know a good property manager from a bad property manager until you've had a bad property manager. Then it's a very clear vision of what a bad property manager was. And the guy we hired in the spring of 22 was a bad property manager. And the one we have today is world-class. She just is a leasing phenom. We just got off an asset management call this morning. Today, we're 100% pre-leased. But the point of it is, is property management. Right. So LPs should ask questions of the general partner. What's your relationship with the property manager? How many times have you used them? Are they proficient in this asset class? I mean, if you're looking at a class A asset, have they only done class Cs? Or are they new to this market, et cetera? And then you as an asset manager, I'm kicking myself because we were desired very much in the spring of 22 to get somebody and get off the temporary payroll. But we should have done our due diligence much greater and really challenged the hiring assumptions by the property management company. Lessons learned. Lessons learned. It's funny that you tell this story because we acquired a deal in 23 and dealt with almost the exact same situation when it comes to on-site manager not working out, increased vacancy, all just kind of hitting at once right after we purchased it. We got this whirlwind of a problem all at once right after acquisition. And so I'm glad to hear that you've worked through that. My other question about this deal, because you get all these curveballs at the very beginning with not great people and managers and different hurdles that you have to get over. What about the bridge loan? Because I know you talked about this is an asset that's newer class A with a bridge loan. What were your plans going into this acquisition for that debt on this property? You know, if you did a deal in 2021 or 22, most likely you closed with the bridge debt because it was really the only way deals were getting done at that time. Fixed rate and agency debt had pretty much dried up except for renewals. So we did, we closed in February of 22, just almost two years ago. We had a five-year note with five years interest only, three-year term with two one-year extensions. And we were fortunate enough to have them bought rate cap insurance. Many people didn't, and that has been devastating for people who didn't in that time period. We purchased rate cap insurance with a 2% strike price. So that means if interest rates went up 2%, this insurance kicked in. And as we all know, we bought it in February, and by May, we'd hit that ceiling as the Fed was raising rates. So the variable rate was term SOFR plus 365, 365 basis points. I think we were at five, six, and when we closed, that's where the rate cap kicked in at five, six. 
Today, our interest on that note is at 9.2 and hoping that comes down. But so the value of that rate cap insurance, and we thought we really debated that at the time. The lender did not require us to, but the partners, and we had a lot of discussion about that. In February of 22, that strike price 2% cost us $128,000 to buy. It's a lot of money. Four months later, you couldn't have bought it for a million dollars because rates were just, as you know, going through the roof. That was a real win. We far got back more than $128,000 on this rate cap insurance already and will. So that term comes up for renewal in February of 25. So we're real focused on currently for the next 12 months of maximizing revenue, making sure we get the rate bumps, keep it occupied, hopefully keep it occupied, looking for other income. I mentioned tech packages, reserve parking. We're putting room premiums on first floor and third floor units because people like those more and just storage units, trying to really maximize revenue. And right now we're under the assumption that we're either going to sell this asset or we're going to have to execute one of the extensions late in 24. And those dynamics, as I tell our investors, are difficult to predict because there's interest rate costs between now and then, banks a willingness to lend between now and then. Depending on where you're at, some say credit markets may continue to dry up, which is going to be real devastating for us. So a lot of variables in the mix there, Trent, between now and then. And we're just trying to navigate them, as I'm sure you are too. When it comes to buying rate cap insurance in February of 22, and you tell someone that now, you should write a book about how you're a genius and toot your horn a little bit. Because with what happened, I think a lot of people would give you props for that. That was a great decision. And not many people made that decision, like you said. I can remember vividly the call with my two other partners on this. And we were debating this very question in about January of 22. So again, I'm the accounting finance guy. I'm like, just buy it. I wanted to buy a 1% strike price, which was, I don't call what it was, but it probably would have been $150,000. But I used to keep numbers on it, but we blew through the what we spent on about the first, I mean, it's paying in excess of $20,000 a month. So almost two years into it. So yeah, <laughs> glad we did it. Absolutely. But again, for your audience who is, and passive investors are interested in being a passive investor. One of the questions you're asking, what kind of debt do you have on it? Does the debt match? Does the debt match the business plan? If the sponsor tells you, we're going to hold this for five years, then why'd you put 10-year debt on it? And fixed or variable, and there's not a wrong answer, but educate yourself as to what the risks are for each. One other thing I wanted to ask you about these hurdles and unpredicted or unpredictable differences in the market. What is your opinion or what do you guys do when it comes to these challenges and how does that affect preferred returns during these time periods? I know a lot of GPs just stopped paying preferred returns because they didn't have the rate cap insurance and are scrambling to figure things out when occupancy decreases and you have all these other things going on. What's your opinion on or how do you handle a situation like that? That's a great question because, you know, first, all these Trent are businesses. So I would say nobody ever made a personal budget that they hit to the penny either <laughs> in their personal lives. So performances are just that. You hope they're directionally in the same, the right way, but they're going to be risk in every asset you buy. There are going to be risk and there are going to be business challenges that occur. 
Because the properties in 22 and 23 stopped cash flowing. They right. had a significant debt increase, which adding to the expenses of the property. When I first started doing this, it was a big red flag as an investor if the sponsorship group didn't meet their pro forma and paying out distributions. I see this from both sides now of the equation as a limited partner and as a general partner. I understand the frustration of limited partners I am too, but many of the ones I'm a limited partner in and pause distributions probably sometime in late 22 and through 23. As a general partner, as a risk mitigator, I applaud those decisions because most times they have variable rate debt that they're going to have to buy a rate cap renewal or buy down the debt to execute a, a refinance. I don't really think that's as taboo as it once was to not have paid distributions, but each property is going to be different. And I think investors should ask those hard questions and gain comfort with them. Me personally, I just want to do everything to protect the investors' money as a general partner, protect their money and prevent a cash call so that there's not going to be more capital infusion required to maintain the liquidity of the asset. And I think that is one where the tsunami of debt in the next year two is going to continue to be challenging as well. I know some very great operators, very good operators that have foreclosed on properties, had to give them back to the bank. I admire them as operators, but I guess that's a blemish they'll have to live with. But the economics have changed significantly with all the debt increases that we've seen. And nobody could have forecasted it. Nobody did. If somebody tells you they did, I think they're lying to you. So. <laughs> I really appreciate your answer on that, Randy, because our company is very conservative, risk adverse, and all of our debt is fixed debt. Or I guess we have one that goes variable in two years or something like that. But most of our debt is fixed debt. And we've set ourselves up where we haven't had to deal with a lot of these challenges that other operators have dealt with. But I love what you said about as an operator making that decision. Yes, it's not one that you want to make, but at the end of the day, it's better to keep the asset and protect the capital than losing everything. And if you have investors or LPs that are upset, they're not getting their monthly or quarterly distribution. I think it's important to explain the reason why that decision has to be made. And like you said, a lot of people made that tough decision and are keeping assets in their portfolio because of those decisions. Well, and you hit it on the head. At that time, as a general partner, it's just extremely important to communicate. There's a lot of people that go... And I've been on the receiving end of this as a limited partner that go radio silence when things get difficult. And as a limited partner, when challenges abound, you want to receive more communication than less. That's the one that we've always tried to do as a general partner to make sure that we're forecasting what we're facing with our investor group, that rate cap renewals and why we're pausing distributions and why we're trying to preserve cash. And one of the assets is probably going to have a capital call at the end of this year. And so we're starting to tell investors of that. Here's why. And we put it in our monthly letters and our quarterly webinar updates. Here's why. Nobody likes a surprise. As a limited partner, I've been in the receiving one with a surprise. Oh, we need a capital call and we need it in the next 45 days. I didn't get any updates that that was forthcoming at all, other than we need your money now. Again, things that distinguish a good sponsorship group from a mediocre or bad one and how you to communicate those things. And so referrals are important and how 
people feel they're being communicated with is important. Absolutely. I've gotten on the phone personally with each of my investors when there's bad news to deliver and tried to, rather than sending an email, maybe it's because I'm just a boomer, a baby boomer, but I'd prefer to talk to somebody and say, hey, this is what happened and Absolutely. why. Transparency is key in this business. Yeah. When you acquired this deal, you're underwriting, what was your target hold time? Or I guess, does your company have a preferred hold time for these deals? No, we always said, like most of them, it was underwritten in 22 for a five-year hold, just because that's pretty much what the industry said. But we always said, we will hold it or sell it whenever we can achieve our business plan. We are assuming that's a five-year period, but if we hit it in two, we may sell it. If the market changes, of which it has, it could be a longer hold. Preservation of capital is the number one objective, and then two is cash flow. Hopefully, over the long haul, again, as a limited partner, I've been in property as long as eight years. I don't care. As long as the return is achieved in the end, I don't care. Some people may, but personally, I don't. I think investors need to be savvy about that. And the whole moral of that story, as you know, is investors just need to really spend time with the general partnership group and understanding their objectives, their track record, their communication style, their underwriting assumptions, and all those things to make an informed decision versus just what I call, you know, throwing money in a 401k and hoping it does good. So that's called speculation in my mind versus investing is knowing the risk. And your response really, I think, enhances or shows the risk process and the risk thought process that you guys have, because we're the same way. If we achieve it early, great. If not, we'll keep holding. And I know a lot of people, a lot of sponsors that maybe got in trouble over the last year and a half or will get in trouble in the future. There was that kind of speculative mindset going into some of these deals because three years ago, deals were turning and burning all over the place and a lot of returns were being achieved quickly. And that's just not the case anymore. And so I appreciate what you said about understanding the general partners underwriting and investment strategies as a limited partner, because I think that's very important. Some people may be more risk tolerant and want to jump into a speculative play that you could get a 40% IRR on in two years. And other people are okay holding for seven, eight, 10 years, as long as the numbers are hit at the end of the day. Again, I go back to that speculative versus investor. An investor is somebody who knows the risk and understands them. A speculator is just one who sees all the information on Facebook and LinkedIn and sees this group has turned out some phenomenal returns and I'm going to throw money at them. Absolutely. Let's face it. It didn't take a whole lot of talent to be in this business the last six years from, I'll say, 14 through 19, because all rising tide lifts all ships. But now you're going to see the other side of that. I'm sure you've heard that, you know, when the tide goes out, you get to understand who's swimming naked. So I like that one. Well, Randy, we talked about this deal today. We talked about your background, all the hats you wear or have worn. Is there anything else you want to share with our audience today? It's a pleasure to speak with you, Trent. I'm a syndication and multifamily nerd, so I love to talk about this stuff all the time. I hope your audience got something out of it, and let's do it again sometime. Absolutely. Is there any place that people can connect with you? Sure. I'm on social media, LinkedIn, Randy Langendorfer, uh, Facebook. I have a web page. It's invest. My company's Invest Arc Properties, so it's invest-arc, A-R-K, invest-arc.com. There's a uh, contact us out there. I'd love to chat with somebody if they want to talk about this or anything else. And I appreciate your time today. Awesome. Thanks, Randy. See you. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. We hope that this episode has increased your knowledge and added value to your path to freedom. If you would, please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone that you know wants to be on, please visit westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form to be on the show. Thank you again and enjoy your day.